So I'm walking through the new Moynihan Train Hall, which just opened, I guess, during the pandemic. And on my way here, it's like two hours ago, and I see a ghost. I see this guy that I worked with for like probably two or three years, and I just forgot that he was even a character in my life. The donor? No, 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 no. So this, all right. So this guy was in charge of the prop trading unit at at a broker dealer I worked at, and his whole thing. He was like not a trader. He was like in charge of the desk, and more importantly, every day how much they made or lost. And he was like maniacal about the whole thing. And in those days, probably still now, the prop traders like were always felt underpaid, right? So he would have to have a negotiation with them every month how much how much they contributed to the success of the trading desk. And I just – I never had anything to do with him because I was a broker. But I just remember him always being like – like there'd be like a there'd be like a commotion in the hallway, <laughs> like people waiting outside his door. He would come out of his office. He'd say, guy, guy, come over here. Let me show you something. And he would walk people around the back of his desk to his computer – He'd say, guy, this screen doesn't lie. And he would say that every single time. This screen doesn't lie. Here's the screen. It's not lying. And I listened to him do this every month with 10 different traders, like honestly, for I think two full years. And so, and then I never thought about this gentleman ever again. And I see him just now. Did he recognize you? Dude, I wanted to pull my mask up over my face. Like if I had a hooded sweatshirt on, it would have been so I I avoided, fortunately, because I. It's one of these things where it's like, oh, I hope this guy forgot that I'm alive. Probably not. Not a chance. <laughs> but I definitely forgot that he's alive and his screen that doesn't lie and that whole routine. Uh, it's just it's just like one of these reminders that oh my god, life is very different now than back then. And he's so, still doing it with the, uh, the hot dog vendors. Just case. The screen doesn't lie. He could be homeless or he could be working in the industry. I don't know. But just that whole shtick, like, look at this screen. Is it lying? Of course it's not lying. Eddie, you, you were never a trader, were you? No. Never? never. You, were an, you were an analyst and a, and a writer. Mm-hmm. Okay. I almost took a job at a trap, prop trading shop, I guess, and whatever the hell you call it, in like 2010. I feel, like you was, were, I feel like you would have crushed it. Thank you. It was at the, definitely not. It was in the Trump building on Wall Street. And I walked in there. It was like a lot of Orthodox guys. 40 wall. And it was just, uh, I don't know. Well, it's not really a, it's not really a, a, a job. No, it looked so. like, it looked like fun, but like I had, I have enough bad habits. You, you know, sh- I can't imagine doing that. You show up until you lose enough money right. that they tell you to stop showing up. Right. It's, it's not like I work for this company. I don't think I don't think you're missing anything. Basically, it's like it's like your knish in rounders, you know, just trying to grind it out. <laughs> My first job was in a boiler room. Oh, really? Yeah. Same. Which yeah. one? Maybe we worked in the same one in Atlanta. Okay. Really? Mm-hmm. Commodities. But, you know about the commodities stick? It's the same thing, though, right? Yeah. It's like calling retail people and telling them to trade what's commodities the, with t- you. Wait, t- tell us how. What's the boiler room of commodities like? Like, I got this hot new metal? Options. So it uh, was options. options, and I was there for such a short amount of time. But by the time I realized something was off, I wasn't even sure if they were trading on the real exchanges. Like, I didn't know if it was all made up or anything. But they would close shop and open up under a new name. Mm. That's normal. That happens all the time. 
well, hedge funds <laughs> didn't that, do well. Was that the red flag that you needed to say? I just got a creeps and I didn't like the cold calling and mm. the $600 a week draw, or maybe it was $300 a week draw. And so I went and got a real job and then I got a call from the CFTC. Oh, really? Yep. And to say what? Were you there? I told him what I knew. Can you tell us anything? I told him what I knew and I didn't know anything. So Right. N- never snitch. Good. Good. I, w- I worked at a, a kind of a boiler place. Do you remember Oldie Discount? Yeah. It was not a boiler room. It was close to it. Oh, dear. That was a beverage. That was like, uh, no, that was a discount brokerage. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> what, were you doing? what were you doing there? I mean, they were just, they, they were, they, they threw the book at them because they were told only to hire white males, young white males. Okay. And so it was like a fraternity background. And you just called, called all day long. The lead was muni bonds because they could take uh, that subsection of the Series 7, I think it was like the Series 52. Um, and the, you could pass that like within two weeks. And so they wanted you to pitch, uh, muni bonds and just get money in. And there, th- what's wrong with that though? Uh, I mean, nothing was wrong with that, but it was just sort of, uh, they didn't want people, pe- unless you hit your goals, people were fired very quickly. Yeah. And their big thing was to, uh, that it was commission free trading, but it was how they did the spread on, mm. on the stock. So, and they, they got, you know, basically the, uh, SEC threw the book at them. That was it. I thought they were they were bought. They were shut down. They were they were bought by H and R Block. Oh, wonderful! So, so that's why H and R Block got into the brokerage business. That's right. Yeah. Okay, I remember they had financial advisors. Mm-hmm. That's where they, that's where they were. Um, I feel like that was a name that existed slightly before I came into the business. When did that all happen? Mid nineties. Yeah. yeah, early mid nineties. I, I guess I was there in ninety three, ninety four. Wait, you're? I thought you're not a millennial. I, I don't think so. He's right. Eddie's right on the cutoff. Right. Give, give or take. Which kind of from, from what? <laughs> Gen, Gen X to Boomer? Silent to Boomer. Silent Ouch, to Michael. Boomer. I love that. I don't, I don't know what I am. Because sometimes they say 1980, sometimes they say 1970. Oh, you're an X. No, no offense. You're not I feel that. Yeah, you're an X. And wait, hold on. Speaking of my love for Eddie, I've told you many times, your Twitter account is the number one account that I copy and paste to Ben. <laughs> like at least once a week. We What's say his like, last hot tweet? Like, how is Eddie so gosh darn funny? I'll find it. Just. Talk about yourselves. I've been kicked off the network, so I haven't seen his tweets. Are you st- are you still funny on Twitter? You're always really funny. I try to be. So funny. I think I think you guys are funny, but have you just given up Twitter? Yeah, you just walked away. Yeah, uh, I I mean I thought I would come back, but then I I thought I would take like a, a month off or something. Or I thought I was going to take the summer off, summer of 2020. Mm-hmm. Like I got off Memorial Day, and I figured I'll come back Labor Day. I'm just going to take the summer off from everybody's bullshit, and I never came back. Oh no, the first one I clicked on, Eddie, you deleted it. I'll find another one. You, the, de- are you, you tweet you, and delete? Are you Michael Berry now with deleting I, tweets? I, I delete a lot, yeah. Ooh. Why would you delete a tweet? What would make it? Um, if it's just too silly. Okay. Oh, too, really? Yeah. That's, is that- I, I honestly try to, try, try to be a little more serious. What's the right level of silliness on Twitter? Uh, it depends how many likes I get. Okay. Fair. I would never, back in the day, I would never leave a tweet up. That got under a certain amount of likes. Mm-hmm. Like I would go back later when no one was paying attention and get rid of it. Really? Yeah. I would never so leave something really up. you were really on that, the juice. I would yeah. never leave something up that didn't hit. Because it's like that's now part of my track record and people didn't think it was good. I always felt like you, you I wanted that, to be right? authentic. What? So Did you did you, uh, did, did you used to look at your tweets at the end of the day and be like, nobody liked this one and get rid of it? I don't think so. I know I've deleted tweets. I know I have. I don't know if I deleted a tweet because it didn't get a good hit. Like, okay. I'm sure I have. I'm not. Who am I? Who am I kidding? I'm sure I have. 
Um, I def well, I definitely have because I just feel like if you leave it up there, it's like it's like part of your. I don't know. Yeah. There's no really good reason. How are we looking? Ready to get on the way? All right. Let's roll. John's gonna come in with three claps. Try not to be um, try not to get nervous. <laughs> don't say that. Okay. Right, right, don't okay. think of a pink elephant. All right. Break a leg. Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by me, Michael Batnick, and our castmates are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's episode of The Compound and Friends is brought to you by Direction. Direction's leveraged ETFs are powerful tools for short-term active traders, but they're definitely not for everyone. So know the risks. Trade boldly. For investors looking for longer-term investments, Direction offers strategic and thematic ETFs for precise exposure to satellite investment themes. Direction's latest leveraged ETF is Dozer. That's D-O-Z-R, the daily U.S. infrastructure bull two-time shares ETF. Offering two times the daily return on infrastructure stocks, go to direction.com slash dozer to find out more. If you're a bold, short-term active trader or thematic investor, Direction has ETFs built for you. Before investing, carefully consider a fund's investments, objectives, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at direction.com. Read that carefully. We're here. Is that too loud for you, Michael? Uh, no, you know what it is? It's very... I can't fucking hear. I can't hear. Can That's you guys all. hear? That's all by design. Listen, I'm very happy to announce that today's show of the Compounded Friends features my friend, Eddie Alfenbein. Eddie, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. Okay. Eddie came all the way here from Washington, D.C. Do you take the Acela, Big Shot? No, I had to take the Northeast Regional. What the hell is that? That's the other one. It's the not fancy one. Why? Is we, it, was it a timing thing? Uh, yeah. Okay. And Blair came by limousine. Blair Ducanet came all the way from New Orleans. What's going on? I'm just happy to be here. You excited? Haven't seen you in the flesh in like two years. When's the last time you came to New York, though? You've been here since the since the pandemic, right? I came up for a show at the end of August. Okay. All right. So you've you've been in New York. I have. Okay. How's New How's New York look to you these days? Well, first of all, the weather's perfection. Mm. Yeah. Um, it does not look very different to me. It doesn't. It looks the same. It's getting harder to park in my lot to get on the train, so I feel like more people are coming through. I the was day. on the subway yesterday, and the, the cars were full. Yeah, I haven't been on the subway, so I don't know. It was but, full. Um, that definitely changed. It looks pretty normal to me. Yeah. All right, we're, make, we're making a big comeback. So, first of all, so glad to see you guys, not just for the show, but just in general. And you had never met each other before today. No, we hadn't. How is that possible? B- b- big fan for a long time. Are you time. surprised by that? Same. Yes. You, got, you guys read each other's blogs, I bet. Okay. And you, you guys have Barry Ritholtz in common, pretty much, right? Yeah. Okay. How long have you known Barry, by the way? You've known Barry longer than you know me, and I'll tell you how I know that. I thought um, – now, I know I was at the dinner where you met Barry. Yes, that was. But I knew Barry before that. You just blew up my whole thing. That's what oh, I I'm say. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I just barged on your point. But I guess I um, – Barry's was the first blog that I reg- read regularly. Was he writing before you? Yeah. Okay. So he's, he's sort of got me into it by by uh, by reading him, but I don't rem- I can't recall when we first met. You and but I, I knew him. No, Barry, oh, Barry's here today. Barry. Should we have him in to tell us his origin oh, story? No. <laughs> we'll never get we'll never get, we'll never get out of here. We'll never get the show on the road. 
Uh, first of all, Eddie, I want to start by congratulating you on five years of crossing Wall Street, the ETF, right? Thank so you. What is the, what is, are you allowed to say the name of the ETF or the paratroopers crash in the window? How does that work? What are you <laughs> like not allowed to say? Monsters, Inc., what is it? Uh, you can talk about the index. Uh, no, I can, I can talk about it. It's, uh, it's the, the official, official name is the Advisor Shares Focus Equity ETF. Oh, rolls right off the tongue. Great name. Yeah, ticker symbol CWS. Yeah, I'm surprised that name wasn't taken. You got I know, lucky. Okay. But I did get the ticker symbol from Crossing Wall Street. CWS is the ticker. All right, so what's it like running an ETF for five years? Uh, it's, it's so challenging. You learn a lot about like the fees that go into it. When you hear all these people talk about, oh, the fees are too much, the fees are too much. And you realize everybody who takes a bite out of the ETF, that's something that's not talked about a lot. But when you're at the other end of the table. Who's in there? Bank of New York Mellon gets something just for waking up. Yeah. The the lawyers, the prospectuses, the, uh, the exchange fees. You don't even think about that. Right. DeFi solves that. Mm-hmm. So that's right. <laughs> just, just, just thrown out there. Uh, and Blair is here. Blair, you are on Ritholtz Wealth's investment committee. So I know you talk to Michael a lot, probably more so than you talk to me. And you're also a CFP. And you had clients up in the office. Today. Are those your clients, or is that somebody else's? I couldn't figure out what was. Those are Nick's, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. Nick, my colleague down in Louisiana. That's right. Um, okay. Those are some clients that he's been talking to, and okay. they. Ironically, it's a really funny story, but. They ended up being in Alabama, where my parents are from, and we we met up. Okay. And then they ended up being here the same week that I was. So it's meant to be. Meant to be. They're awesome people. All right. We're going to start talking about uh, BlackRock, which reported earnings this week. And, Eddie, I know you were day trading this name right after they reported. Uh, Michael, what do we want to say here to open this up? I think a good place to start is that BlackRock's a big organization. Maybe you've heard of them. They manage just under $10 trillion. They reported yesterday. I think it's like 9.45 or what, you know. They'll, they'll be there tomorrow. 9.45 trillion? Yeah, so so that's... So that's, that's only nine coins. That's really not that much if you think of it With the trillion dollar coin. Yeah, no, you're right. Small so, change purse, and you can manage the whole thing. It's, it's nine, tr- nine, nine, 9.45 coins, or the entire global hedge fund, private equity, and venture capital industries combined. And so as I was thinking about this topic, how do they do it? Like I understand, obviously the the Barclays Global uh, was was huge. That's the origin of iShares, and there was a great article by Robin Wigglesworth in the FT. But how did they like leave Vanguard in the dust? Like how did they get from like five trillion to ten? Do we think they'll be the and do we think they'll be the first asset manager to ten? I mean, probably do it right now. Yeah, they're probably there tomorrow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they are just stupendously large. But remember, the the iShares was a brilliant acquisition from Barclays. They also had the uh, the Merrill acquisition a few years before that. So they really, you know, got when. What did uh, they buy from Merrill? uh, Was this some uh, institutional brokerage? Asset management. Yeah, was it? That's where the asset management business came from. Okay. And uh, so, you know, they, they bought at very opportune times. But also remember, they have that whole Aladdin business with God knows exactly what that is. Well, I let, me, let, me, let, me, let me I think ju- that's fake. Let me jump in. No, it's not fake. It's very I, real. No, it's very real. And I, 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 this is a great origin story. So when uh, after Larry Fink left First Boston, they started this program that was called the Asset Liability Debt and Derivative Investment Network or Aladdin. Ooh. And I wonder if that was an accident. So no, this was in like the early nine. Uh, was this? This is before. I think it was before the movie. Um, and what it was was, I think the way they described it was like an MRI machine for portfolios and for derivative bond derivatives specifically. I think it was mortgage-backed securities. So I know that that's very widespread technology throughout the industry for risk management. But 
I've never spoken with somebody who could give me a good description for why it differs from anything else that anyone no, I've, else could I, do. I, I've used it. Okay, so tell so tell tell everybody it is what what the story is with this. At least the the way that you're they're using it with advisors, it is super sophisticated and frankly overkill for our purposes. Right. Um. But they get they get granular, super granular heat maps yeah. like. Crazy factor, uh, the breakdowns, like way more attribution than is necessary for what we're doing. So it's not really actionable for wealth management. No, it can, it, it can be if you're if you're trading. Like it certainly can be. Like I what? never really understood why they were offering it to me. I was at like a hundred million dollar RIA, and they wanted to run my portfolio of mutual funds through it, which I thought was a little bit hilarious. The even more hilarious thing is that we didn't share our portfolios with them because we didn't want them to know our secrets. But you're right. <laughs> you didn't want BlackRock to know, <laughs> know. what your asset allocation mix. Right? Right? It's proprietary. Right. This was it's back like in the day when. when <laughs> yeah, dude, it's, I hate that. Is so hacky. That's like that's like not sharing data with the NSA. What is that from? Like boxing? What's oh, wait, that sound? Wait, wait, wait. Uh, that's that's my, that's just like my that's just like my my favorite sound on earth. I okay. feel like it's the only way to explain it. Wait, hold on. What? The reason they wanted to X-ray your portfolio is so they could sell me their products. So they could say that the iShares version of whatever you were doing. Is better than I mean that's their job. Or There's they're like you that. need you need Minval or whatever you need. Uh, but wait, I think, right, I think, what you're missing. I think this is precisely how they got bigger than Vanguard. I assume they're bigger than Vanguard. Yeah, they are bigger than Vanguard uh, because they're aggressive. They have salespeople. Like Vanguard has external wholesalers, but and so does iShares. But they're not. Vanguard is nowhere near as aggressive. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like iShares is actively out there. All the time, selling, selling, selling. They are a vacuum for assets. So how big? So let's put this chart up, John. I think Aladdin is something like thirty trillion are t- is tied to it. Thirty trillion is, but what does that really mean? I know, it, it means can, thirty trillion is mean being X rayed by yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, whatever. So like sovereign wealth money, like BlackRock will overlay Aladdin and tell the CIO this is where your risk is. And they basically know where all the dollars in the world okay, are, but not the crypto. I get that. Not the crypto. It's crypto's not in there. No, I'm just I'm saying they they haven't like scanned the crypto yet because it's DeFi. I bet you they have. So the, right. this is the breakdown of their assets. They've got you, so well. All right, this is different chart. This is just showing in pink is BlackRock uh, versus private equity and hedge funds. They're they're basically neck and neck. So I remember when they bought Barclays and they were something like two trillion, and that does not seem like that long ago. So what's blowing my mind about this is from two to ten That's in the blink point. of an eye. How did that happen? The Fed. It's what? well performance. Although historically they're a bond shop, no, we just had we had a lot of money creation, like and mo- and most of it fell in their lap because they're really good at what they do. What it is the iShares, and also you you mentioned the Fed. Ironically, they they do everything for the Fed as well. Yeah, yes. they were they were they were executing the bond buying programs, mm-hmm. or at least it was using it, it was, it was the, their funds. And yeah. yeah, their yeah. funds. So all right, they've got three trillion ETFs. Uh, three trillion in ETFs. Three trillion in ETFs. They've got one trillion in retail. I don't know exactly what that means. Forty uh, act mutual funds. No, uh, I don't know because under institutional it says one point six trillion in active strategies for institutional, three trillion in index strategies for institutional. So maybe the one trillion are, are the mutual funds. So that's eight point seven trillion right there. They've got seven hundred billion dollars in cash management. Like uh, of course. So they reported earnings this week, and they've got and they, 10, they do auditing as well. They've got ten billion in the, in, uh, in in advisory. So they reported earnings this week. They beat estimate, no surprise. They somehow missed the mark on new assets, which I mean, it doesn't seem like they did. 
Uh, revenue grew by 16% to $5 billion. That's surprising how you could be this big and still be growing in the teens, mm-hmm. uh, still be growing top line. And then uh, you know, they, they raised like $98 billion during the, during the course of the quarter in net inflows. Where the hell is that money coming from? What was that number you just said? Spending money. Long-term net inflows for the quarter were $98 billion. I see, uh, yeah, 58 in ETFs alone. So where is that coming from? This is actually interesting. This is very interesting. $25 billion inflows in active institutional products. 401ks. No, that's institutional. Yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. $8 billion in outflows from the index on the institutional side. I think what they've done is they've so successfully captured so many niches and major areas of the market. Well, ESG, they're huge. Like people people that would normally like compete with a firm like this, they probably just look at their breadth of products and say, I'm not even going to bother. And then that feeds on itself and they just keep getting bigger. Well, it, I mean, it also raises a question, what kind of firm are they? I mean, are they a SIFI? Do they, should they be yes. defined as yeah, one? Yeah. Because, well, they're not a bank. You can't they're talk not, about capital well, ratios. They're, they're not making loans. Right. What, so I think they're the most, I think they're the, the SIFI, like for markets. They're not, they don't have deposits like banks. It's a different kind of financial risk, but like without question, they sit in the middle of everything. They were, they were neck and neck with State Street in like, I don't know, maybe a decade ago. Probably they were probably neck and neck in assets. I don't know what happened there. How I, I State Street fell behind. Same I think, ballpark. I think, and, and I'm sure people can fact check me on this and know a lot more than I do. I think State Street was really, really, really confined by its relationship with 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 uh, S and P, and right. the fact that S and P was taking such a big chunk of the sector ETFs of the spiders. Right. So they didn't have the ability that hamstrung their growth. They didn't have the ability to shop index providers, so they had to stay at a certain basis point fee iShares was able to go to Russell, FTSE, and and just, and just be like, this is what we want to do. Yeah, they had, they had I mean, every year the, those fees get get less and less. They they are trend, I mean, so trending just, lower. Oh, it's been a war of yeah. just com- fee compression. Well, that's the other thing. At this point, if it's it's a barbell, the only assets that are the only categories that are making money are index funds and like niche products, thematic products. But they make a, but they're making a lot if they hit like the thematic yeah. stuff. Um, BlackRock's not very big in thematic, or has that changed? I don't think so. They're not doing, like, new tech, like that kind of thing, right? I don't think so. Not, not that I know of. Uh, I want to do this thing about the era of mutual funds is dying, long-live ETFs. Is there still stuff to say on this topic? Like, don't we just – haven't we just all accepted that this is going to be what it is for the next 20 years? It is. Yeah, I mean, the only thing holding it back at this point is the 401ks, right? That's the only reason we have new flows going into mutual funds, and – now we have pretty much every company is now doing ETFs, right? Yeah. I so I wonder I wonder if the the last surviving mutual funds are the ones that just convert and make ETFs. Like, yeah, because people just there's accounts out there that people don't even remember that they have. There's, you know, yeah. all kinds of assets that are just stuck there. I think one of the things over the next decade that we were gonna see happen more and more is advisors launching their own ETFs. Patrick Cleary and Wes from Alpha Architect were on Mev's podcast a few weeks ago talking about that's like a big, big, big part of their business now it's, is helping advisors bring ETFs to market. But isn't that a conflict? Why? Like how do they get around? So, all right, so I'm a financial advisor. I'm billing my clients an AUM fee, and then I invent an ETF, well, and just, I'm putting it in their accounts, and that is also paying an AUM fee. I think it's, I think it's, as long as you disclose it, I don't think it's, I think it's fine. Yeah, it's not new. 
It's well. Are there any so prominent this? advisors that have their own ETFs? Not with well, ETFs, but they do their own private funds. They, you know, do other asset management wrap products where they're charging a fee, and they disclose. Now, do some of them charge way too much because of that? Yes, but as long as you disclose, it's above board. Let's, let's say an advisor, uh, Rick Edelman, created an ETF or asked for an ETF to be created for him to use, but he didn't get any fees from it. Let's say that an advisor has an after strategy, sector, rotation, trend following, whatever it is. Yeah. And it's more tax efficient to put this inside of an ETF wrapper. Right. Now, I don't know why an advisor would want, A, the scrutiny from the public, if they're public-facing like we are, of just being having the shit beat out of them every <laughs> every 30 days. Um, but from a tax efficiency standpoint, I get it. Oh, because that becomes the advisor's track record. Yeah. Whatever's in the ETF. Like yeah. the ETF versus the SPY. Right. Is... I mean, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think about that? I don't know. I don't have any uh, thoughts that come to mind. Uh, it's kind of scary who the let's start ETFs nowadays. <laughs> I, any, I mean, anyone. Told you this guy was funny. <laughs> but what, I mean, what I think of is the origin of the hedge fund industry. And that's how it was started sort of after hours, people taking uh, client money and putting them into the funds. It really was not seen as an industry. And I think you probably know this if you're under 100 or so, a lot of the... Um, regulations are much, much softer. As far as why an RIA would want an ETF, that's it. I can't think of a particular reason outside of outside of track record. Well, how about this? Not just for their own clients. What if they want to raise money for mutual sure. clients? Tax efficiency too. Yeah, of you, course. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because, why? Because, because the ETF would be better than them running that strategy in separate accounts? If you have an active strategy like in-house in like we do, right. people might be wanting to put that inside of an ETF. So I guess I, I wonder why we haven't seen the largest RIAs launch ETFs. I, I, well, I'm saying I think it might be coming. Okay. We're not doing – you have no plans for this, right? We're not doing it. Okay. You, you with him on that? I don't – I'll back you up. Blair's <laughs> like, I haven't heard this conversation yet. Okay. We're, not, we're not doing it. All right. Cool. Uh, what if the stock market were a bond? Eddie, this is did you. you. Did you eat uh, magic mushrooms before you wrote this blog post? <laughs> Maybe. What the hell is going on here? I just thought it would be kind of a, a clever thing I did is what if we took the returns, the daily returns of the stock market, but had it in the form of a bond? So we just assume a make-believe bond that was uh, a perpetuity, ne never uh, 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 matures, and what it would look like if we just compared it with the stock market. I actually had done it a couple of times, and I took the Wilshire 5000, the total return, goes back to 1970. Um, the thing is, you since it is make-believe, you got to have to uh, find a starting point. Okay. And so I had to mess around with that, and I lined it up against uh, the, the red line is the uh, uh, Moody's AAA. And what, the yield? Yeah. Okay. And so you can even see the gap around 2000. You can see just how overpriced well, what happened the stock in 2000? market won. Yeah, the, uh, was that a particular spot of trouble? That was when uh, the uh, Y2K ruined all the computers. Right. We did recover from that. All right, so what happens if you turn the stock market into a bond? Like, what was your conclusion from doing that? Um, just sort of seeing uh, a, a relative valuation level. You can see what's going on uh, where, you know, you can – I think it's just – if you tell investors, think of your stock as a income-producing asset, and that really changes how you, how you approach it. Okay. And imagine if you just got dividends like it did years ago. Even though if you won't get that, imagine if you did. Okay. 
And and then you look at it like almost like you would look at real estate. Like these are my rents exactly. coming in. Exactly. Yeah. So Josh and I spoke about cash flows on what are your thoughts this week. And your strategy is not a it's not a dividend strategy at all, really, but a lot of your companies do pay dividends. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yes. So you you tweeted recently, be suspicious of any investment thesis that heavily relies on demographics. Colgate Palmolive is up 30-fold in 30 years. It ain't demographics, it's toothpaste. So I want to talk about <laughs> which I, I love, it's, it's it's brilliant, but I want to talk about that and juxtapose that with the environment that we find ourselves in today where nobody wants cash flow producing assets because money costs nothing, so who gives a shit? And you look at Verizon or AT&T or a lot of these juicy yielding stocks, nobody wants them. Almost across the board, they look like shit. Uh, staples are a smaller percentage of the S&P 500 today as they were in 2000. So is this difficult for your strategy? Is this permanent? Is this because of interest rates? What, what do we think is going on here? Um, because you talked about the the consumer staples. I thought that was a very good point because historically, these are some very strong names and the sector has done very poorly. I think some of that is due to interest rates. I mean, they're the closest stocks that kind of trade like bonds except for utilities. So, you know, the sector can be out Didn't of favor. Didn't they do really well during the pandemic, the early st- stages? They, Didn't they, the consumer they, they did staples better. go nuts? Well, sort of, sort of the Clorox, but that was a special situation. But yeah, they did. Right. So when did they, when did they start to underperform? But in the last, I'd say, 18 months, they've really started okay. to lag. Okay. But they've had periods like that before, like the late 90s. Right. And then they had dramatic outperformance. So it's a defensive sector. It's going to follow the economy. Okay. So it's not a demographic story, but maybe it kind of is a little bit. Or is it really more about, like, how rate-sensitive they are? Can't figure out what the driver is for these. I stocks. wouldn't say it's rate sensitive. I would say the, these are uh, cyclical, or you know, the, the opposite of cyclical. Okay. The, you know, the, Do they trade differently from each other? Is there like a lot of dispersion in the, in the sector? They, or they, not as they much follow each other a lot because it's it's a straight line. I mean, you, that that's what a staple is. You know, the home builders. You see the report. It's either up a lot or down a lot. We think of like I don't know, like Winnebago or something. Either they're doing business or they're not. And it's just not that way with, you know, Church and Dwight is one of the stocks. It's, it's like baking, baking soda. It's baking soda and condoms. I mean, <laughs> you really can't get more basic than that. You're invested in Do Winne- not mix the two. Yeah. Don't, don't buy both at the same time. You're invested in Winnebago? No, I'm not. I was just using it as an example oh, okay. of, a, uh, of a strong cyclical. Oh, I see. Okay. So like Staples is like Procter & Gamble, Coke, et cetera. Exactly. I think like Kimberly Clark. It's toilet paper. There's just tissues. not a lot of like – it's very rare that one base. of those companies is bucking the trend. Yeah. But listen, also, when people want growth, people don't want staples. But staples right. do well in poor times for the economy. Yes. And yes. we're not having that right now. Exactly. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So they're out of fit. It's like the perfect shitstorm for staples. No, like people aren't, people aren't covetous of no those dividends intended. enough to be. So how does that change? Does the whole market have to come down for those to shine or can they eventually catch up in a bull market? Well, I think first they'll start to – they can outperform in a down market. Right. I think that's where they really make their difference. And then they kind of tread water or lag during during the good times. But I think once you start seeing bad times, people are going to turn to those names. I mean it's high quality. It's dividends. That's what people go for when they get scared. All right. Well, bad times have been outlawed. So I think – I feel like we're going to be OK for a while. Uh, I want to do this 60-40 portfolio thing because – it was just pronounced dead again. Wah, wah, wah. How, Blair, how many times in your career ha- have you have you witnessed this death? Oh, if I had a nickel. How about okay. this? Every time. We, Josh, at our first conference in 2014, there was a panel, the death of the 60-40 portfolio. It was called that? Yeah. It was did, 20, did we name it that, though? Probably. Okay. It who, was 2014. Can I guess who was on it? Who would have been on that? I actually, if I have, Neb, if, Neb if I have this right, 
Remember Larry Swedger was late? Yes. And Morgan filled his slot and then got off the stage when Larry came in? Yes. Larry definitely would have been on there defending the 60-40 portfolio. I think I think Meb was like, it's definitely dead. No, I'm kidding. I don't remember what Meb said. <laughs> um, who else? I can't remember. Right. Uh, Meb would have been like, it's definitely dead. <laughs> But there's some interesting things you can do. That's not bad. That's not bad. Not a bad map. That's actually a pretty good map. All right. Bank of America called it the end of the 60-40, while Goldman Sachs Group said losses from such portfolios could swell to 10%. Time out. Time out. You can't say swell to and then follow it by 10%. I didn't say it. Uh, That's GS. If you're going to say swell to, it's got to be... At least 20 or 30. Am I right, Eddie? I mean, the well, rules. stock market only goes down 5%. That's the most it does anymore. So swelling to 10% is a lot. That actually would be catastrophic yeah. relative to. Uh, similar alarms also rang at Deutsche Bank. Are they even allowed to speak publicly still? That's remarkable. Strategists, including Jim Reed, said a shift in the stock bond relationship may force money managers to adjust their thinking. Yeah, no shit. They did. They're buying Bitcoin. Like, like that's what's going on right now. I mean, I mean the... The 10-year yield has soared all the way up to 1.5%. So it's just really taking it out on the 60-40. Well, what do people think is going to happen? If the 40% of the portfolio is getting 1.5%, yeah, lower your return expectations. I did that five years ago, and I've been wrong the entire way up. Love it. I love love being wrong uh, on the upside. Theoretically, if we think that bonds offset the risks of stocks, not every day or every month, but over an appreciable period of time, how could a 60-40 portfolio be, quote, unquote, dead? Well, the, the only time would be inflationary. So th- they're assuming, you know, either stocks be uh, stocks go up, bonds go down, bonds go up, stocks go down, or they both go up. Then you get the other corner on the tr- on the quadrant where they both go down. And that that's doesn't all. happen. It There's does too much happen. Money, but it, there where was the, the money, 1970s. Where would the money go? Yeah. In the past though. two Is there months. another asset class? I mean, gold. Gold would offset it. Gold. So is there enough gold in the world to offset the amount of money in 60-40 portfolios? I would bet, and no. I've never run the numbers on this, but if you did a you know, 55, you know, 57, 37, and whatever the balance in gold, I bet you could severely limit what you know these these periods where, we the, should where have, they're aligned. We should have Nick look at the periods of time where bonds and stocks both decline I've together. This, I've done this a billion times. No, 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 no. Inflation but adjusted. Whether or not gold really helped in those moments. I bet it's only half the time it helps. And that doesn't really mean anything for the future anyway, so. Right, and gold has been financialized now to a degree that it wasn't in the 70s. You had to, like, buy a brick or mm-hmm. buy a futures contract. Mm-hmm. Now you, it's ever, another stock. Have you ever been to the basement at the New York Fed? And no. they let you go down in From the elevator? Hard? Yes, they let you go down in the elevator and they open the doors and you can see the when bri- did you When did you bricks. do that? I was in college and I was on- Pre-9-11? Um, nope. Post-9-11? Mm-hmm. And they're still letting people do that? Yep. And we went on a field trip to the Fed and okay. they took us down to that diehard scene and we saw the bricks just laying there. And I'll never forget it. Yes. That was that was one of the better diehards that people didn't think it was good at the time. No, it's Dire been, with a Vengeance. Is that what you want to die with a Vengeance? The one with Sammy Jeremy Allen. Irons. Well, yeah. That was great. It was, gr- it was great, but at the time, people were like, all right, so you saw the bricks themselves? Yeah. Okay. Not impressed. Yeah. So it wait, doesn't do anything hold on. The 60-40 portfolio is going to have lower returns going forward than it has in the past 10 years. That's obvious. I feel like that's you can't even like really debate that. I mean, it's all about risk. You know, what's your risk tolerance? What's right. you know going back to wealth management? What are your goals? What are your objectives? What's your time horizon? What's your risk tolerance? Yes, some clients have more stocks now than before right. because interest rates are low. Right. Big deal. This Doesn't is, mean anything's dead. This right. is Jim Reed from uh, Deutsch. 
There is every chance we are, uh, obviously, for this relationship to reverse, meaning bonds offset stocks, we need to be in a sustainably higher inflation era. There is every chance we are in one. And if so, a lot of the relationships that have prevailed in the average person's investment career could change. Yeah. So fair. could or or maybe could not. So I, from my perspective, it's hard to imagine both asset classes declining together for more than a couple of months before people start buying well, I don't one. think they've ever declined together for more than four months at a time because eventually money has to go somewhere. And if stocks are falling, eventually it will find its way into safety, which are bonds. Right. So this September, there was like a pretty ugly moment, though, where they both went down together. Right. Yeah, they can, they can go down together, but not just not, not for like two days, not for more than a couple of months. Right. Uh, on the list of things that I'm like terribly worried about. By the way, I, I shouldn't say can't because, you know, oil went negative. So on the list of things I'm terribly worried about, this isn't high. Where is it for you? It's I mean, I it's a pet peeve of mine when people say it's the death of something. That's just a very hackneyed way to get uh, attention. Yeah. And anything in finance. It works. You know, you know, uh, Bitcoin, it's dead. Yeah, the death. I, I'm, I'm saying it's, I'm proclaiming right now, it's dead. Right. Um, but, you know, for a 60-40 model, I'm not worried about it. It'll, it'll do fine. Okay. Uh, did you ever work at Merrill? No. Where did you work? UBS? Yep. Okay. Do you know about Project Thunder? No, uh, no, but uh, okay. it, it's bringing some some stuff to mind. The thundering herd. They're trying to turn. This is like one of the funniest things I've seen. This is at Advisor Hub. Shout out to Mason Braswell. They're trying to turn broker sentiment around because they're losing advisors to other wirehouse firms. So we're in week seven of Project Thunder, and every week there are like more things that they're giving back to the advisors. If I was Robin Hood, I would run that and just with LOL on top of that and just run that as my advertising. Just run the right. Uh, okay. New rewards program for customers with a million dollars or more in their accounts. Uh, great. You become diamond tier or diamond honors if you're 10 million or more. But these are some of the funny things that I, that I, that I absolutely loved. Brokers will now have more options for sending custom invitations and can also pull more content off the shelf to build presentations and will no longer have to circulate chief investment office research reports pre or post seminar, according to the memo. So that you was could, word salad. What was that? You can now invite clients to, um, <laughs> you can now invite clients to seminars, which I can't imagine there are people still showing up at these with, things. With custom invitation. With a custom invitation. Is uh, it, is, but is it embossed or is it thermography? Because let's we got to get down to the details here. Uh, they're making it easy for brokers to take on customers who have marijuana-related businesses. Uh, that's that's a pretty big perk for the six or so people that that might apply to, I guess. Um, it's, it's bigger than you think. Allowing brokers to send non-branded greeting cards. So non-branded. Non-branded. Oh. So you can go into Hallmark now. If you're a Merrill broker, <laughs> I mean, this is where we are. So uh, it was one, there was one other that I thought was pretty excited. Uh, actually, this is a good one. Merrill has added a tax-efficient management service to clients in Merrill's investment advisory program that allows customers to pick and choose tax management. All right, so that's like one useful thing uh, out of this whole they list. They didn't have that before? I mean, that's table stakes. I, I would have I assumed um, do you know, do you know, advisors at, at Merrill right now? I only know one. I only know you one. Know, 
I think I might know some people, but it might be Morgan Stanley at this point. I can't, I don't I don't actually know. Right. So I went to a Merrill trainee event and it was actually pretty good. So they had a speaker. Uh, were you at were you at that with me? Yeah. Oh, that was um, Nick Murray. That was awesome. That was pretty cool. Nick Murray is awesome. Uh, there was there was a lot of young, vibrant yes. energy in the room. I couldn't believe it. I like there was there was people there. The problem is they can't keep the young people there. Right. No, I understand. But I was just I was just, I just thought the program was dead. And maybe it is dead now. I know we're getting back to Eddie's pet peeve word, but let's just say it's dying. The death of the death of Merrill's uh, thundering herd. Yeah. So they make they're making these guys into bankers, basically, and that's I think what they're trying to fight off. So when UBS bought Payne Weber, right? right. I think that was their goal, their thought. It's a European bank. The European bank model is actually pretty good. You walk in on the street, you do your banking, you get a certain amount of assets, they move you upstairs to the wealth management. But I think UBS figured out really early because that merger is, you know, early 2000s. Um, they weren't going to bankify Payne Weber. And so they've just run it as an American arm and it never became UBS. I think they realized very early on, no, the DNA of this company is not is not going to uh, yeah. tolerate this. So I felt bad that they changed all the names of these like storied brokerage firms. Uh, and like when we talk about how big BlackRock is. Even if, like, if you ask 100 people on the street who's BlackRock, they probably don't know. They all know Merrill Lynch. Mm-hmm. They all. DLJ. If they're of a certain age, DF they all Hutton. know Payne Weber. Yeah. These brands are gone. I, 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 feel like that's, I feel like that's a very big difference well, what, from BlackRock. What, what year did Vanguard buy Stratton Oakmont? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think that was just a few years ago. Uh, all right. RIP. Uh, I guess I shouldn't say that. It's maybe too early. RIP Merrill. Because these guys are now all no, Bank of America Securities. the Great Securities. Ram Capital, RIP, IP. <laughs> uh, Herb Greenberg's theory on why nothing matters. So he did this thing about where did all the red flags go? And I feel like we're in a moment where people don't care about red flags at all. Red flags didn't go anywhere. No, people's, people's reaction attention to, to People's reaction. Yeah, people don't give a shit about red flags. Why is that? Because it's a bull market. Rates are at zero, when so the all Fed, the models. Yeah, when the Fed decided to buy junk bonds, like, risk-taking changed dramatically. Right. And it's almost as if, like, there's no – there's there has to be risk. But for the time being, nobody The cares. only risk is not being in. Yeah. But I kind of think that a lot of the red flags and the big names people don't care about, like – Tesla, as an example, like was a short seller's like dream, right? And it just didn't work out, whatever. But there are, as we keep saying, I feel like every week, there are a lot of stocks in the stock market that just blew up. If Apple said tonight- well, it went down by half. Yeah. If Apple Isn't said it? tonight, we have to restate two years of earnings, the stock would go up, right? I, I don't think it would go up, but it would go down, but it probably wouldn't last long. I think People would... would not be freaked out. If it happened- you know, 15 years you ago. remember that? No, but I, I really think that this nothing matters. There's no, like, no offense to her, but I really think that that's kind of like a cop-out because there are plenty of stocks blowing up all over the place. There really are. And there are a lot of shitty companies that are being, that are crazy overvalued and investors seemingly don't care about the red flags. But there's a lot of stocks that are getting blown up out there. Here, here's, here's what Herb says. Uh, while figuring out which red, and he, by the way, for people that don't know who Herb Greenberg is, he was like one of the original short seller columnists mm-hmm. or he wasn't selling short, but his contacts were short sellers. He was like one of the original skeptical uh, stock writers at the street.com while figuring out which red flags investors should care about has never been easy. It's harder than it has ever been. The reasons for this may surprise you. 
top of the list, things that might have killed the stock 10, 20, or 30 years ago, things investors might have cared about don't matter today. What's different, I think, is that stocks don't go to zero anymore. Regulatory investigations, stocks go up. Like, like how many times was Tesla investigated look at, while it made new highs? Uh, Lemonade, I believe, got crushed on, on their, I don't know if it was investigation or that news. Um, Virgin Galactic, all the SPACs, Open Door. These stocks are getting annihilated, but I, I guess I guess there's no more bankruptcies. Yeah, they, they don't go away. They don't, they don't go to zero. So maybe maybe that's what Herb was trying to say. Do you remember say. stocks having like regula- regulatory issues and like literally getting pounded to Absolutely. zero? Absolutely. They would just say, we acknowledge that the SEC is, is open an investigation. Just something like that. But so short sellers used to be able to, to expose giant red flags and take the stock to zero, not because they manipulated it to zero, but because they exposed the fact that yeah. this is a zero. This business is a fraud. And the bulls, it's worthless. Right, the bulls would get scared. Right. They'd be like, oh, my God, did you read that short report? This changes everything. I thought about this company. Now they're like, all right, whatever. That guy's wrong. Here's, here, here, right. here's, a, here's a great example. Um, so Gingo Bioworks, which is a recent SPAC, uh, I forget who put out a short report on it. I think the stock fell like 25%. Down, you know, like literally, I think it fell twenty five percent in a day, and it is one, two, three. We're six days later. The stock was up fourteen percent today. It's six days later, all of the, that twenty five percent loss in a day. It's all been recovered in six days. So this might be the poster child of red flags not mattering. And I don't know anything about this company. Herb pointed to market structures changed. A big part of that is so called quants who depersonalize all trading by creating algorithms that buy and sell stocks automatically a process triggered by headlines, words, and a seemingly infinite number of variables. So that's the ETF argument or the quant hedge fund. How much of that do you think is responsible for there not being the same kinds of reactions in stocks that short sellers used to feast off of? That's not new. I mean, we've been blaming the algos for 10 years. We've been blaming the passive strategies for just as long. Yes. But something is different since the pandemic. So neither of these things are it because they're not new so I'm not sure. But also, again, sorry to beat this dead horse. Lemonade was at 190. It went to 60. On what? They're getting investigated? On or really they on shitty earnings? news. It went from 190 to 60. Look at, again, all, all a ton of specs got absolutely blown up. Now, Tesla seems impervious, and maybe the company has escaped, and they've made it work. I don't, you know, I'm not a Tesla analyst. But, again, there are companies that are really getting blown up. But I, Herb's point is well taken. These companies don't go to zero anymore. And I think in the past, they definitely did. I remember being out of the Linzen event with Herb debating Alibaba. Mm-hmm. And I think I was the bull, not that I give a shit, but just like for, for fun. And he was the bear. And then like six months later, Trump won the election and Alibaba's lawyer became the head of the SEC. <laughs> and I remember, I think I got an email or a DM from Herb. He's like, all right, forget everything I just said. None of that shit's going to matter now. So I think there was some element to that. In, maybe that's reversing now, but. I remember he was early on the Stara cycle. That yeah. was a stock friend. He was exactly right on that one. Did, what, what happened to that? Did it go away? Uh, it didn't go away, but it got knocked down pretty severely. Yeah. He, so listen, he's, he's, uh, he's an original, Herb. So now he's, he's coming back because he's been quiet. I think he was working privately. And now he's going to get loud again. So I think I think that'll be. A, but you know what's also interesting? Like there, this, this, this is the glaring difference between being a business analyst and a stock analyst. What do you mean? And businesses and stocks sometimes diverge, and they can diverge for a long, long time. Oh, that's what we learned this. That's what we learned this past winter with the meme stocks. Like whatever analysis you're conducting on uh, 
AMC may not be relevant. And so that's hard, right? You could be right in the business, but it might take several years for the market to agree with you. Yeah, I think the shorts have gotten much smarter, though, about market mechanics. I think so. And they're obviously much savvier about how they present their ideas. It's like a social media thing immediately. Well, going on stage and shorting a company is now like that's putting a target on your back. Like that's the best way to pump a stock. Yeah, that's the other thing that you can't really do anymore. Show up at Irisone <laughs> with here's my 86 slides on this stock that I am materially I kind of short. Like, was was Ackman the beginning of all of this when he was on stage talking about his Herbalife short? There's Ein, the, Einhorn. No, Ackman. There was a documentary, I forget what it's called, where Ackman, it followed Ackman's Herbalife short. And there's one scene in the documentary where he's with his public relations person and he's he, they're saying, uh, before you go on stage, the guy's saying to him, what happens if the stock goes up while you're talking? And Ackman goes, not going to happen. And the PR guy was like, all right, but just humor me. Just like, just, just like, what if it does? And as he's talking, like, I think the stock was up double digits as he's like laying out his short thesis. When, what year was this? 2015, maybe. Wow. I remember the Einhorn bubble basket. That, that was 2015. Amazon and those stocks that. ripped right in his face. And that's when you knew like that game was over where you put on a short position. And oh, betting you- on zero. It was 2016 was the document. So yeah, 2015. It was called betting on zero. That's the documentary. So I don't think you can do that anymore. But I I'm saying that's, that, I think that's when this started. Like that was the, that was the end of the beginning or whatever, you know. Yeah. Beginning of the end. Yeah. But I've always been super impressed with anybody who is a short seller. Yeah. I mean, that is the hardest thing I think there is because you could be right and still lose money and there's the time component to it. I yes. think it's just impossible. So shout to anybody who can be successful as a short stock. Do you have a short stock? Oh, sure. But you know, like, did you make money? Um, I have and I haven't. Okay. Um, Michael Burry is a perfect example of that. He was exactly right. He was way early and he had to wait and wait and yeah. wait for the payoff for that. Not just early. They were f***ing with him. They were like yeah. not marking these bonds where they should have been marked because they knew that him and a few other people it, were out there, like dying of illiquidity. Was it Joel Greenblatt who was his backer? Didn't was I think it was Joel Greenblatt who went to his office and was like, "Dude, give me my money back." And I want to. I don't want to make uh, fudge. Is that true? That's was it, it an was? office or was it a garage? I hope I'm not like misrepresenting the facts of this, <laughs> but I, I I'm pretty sure that it was Joel Greenblatt who was like trying to get his money out of his. Like, stop, stop telling me about how bad the housing market is. Because I think seem when to did matter. he start in oh four or five? Yeah. But it, no, it was like this moment where he knew he was right, and the market was reflecting that. Well, because the banks didn't were, the banks weren't accurately pricing what was going on. Right. So that's the that uh, among like fifty other things. That's to your point. That's what makes short selling so hard. It's not quite as simple as I'm right. The market agrees with me. Next trade. So I know, like uh, Noriel Rabini. I wouldn't say he's a short seller. I don't know how he managed it, but you know, he was a prominent bear for years. Who was before that? Thing. Rabini. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, he's not a bear that. anymore. I, I mean, he may still be. Definitely, definitely. Uh, bears don't change their stripes. Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was Greenblatt that seated uh, Barry. There's only one person that was a prominent bear that I can remember ever becoming a bull, and that's Barry. Oh. I was, I was going to say no, honestly Barry. though. Yeah, I think I think he was like known as a bear. Like that was that was his. He, he, he you know wrote about real estate, and he was really the only person doing that. You know, where you would see it every day. Yes. That was his that was his claim to fame because I remember when I started working with him in 2010 and we would take calls from potential clients. I would take them and these people were like, what are we shorting? And I'm like, no, that's not what we're doing. They're like, come on. Barry's not skeptical of this rally, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Barry doesn't care. This no, but Barry turned bullish. Rally. Like to, all credit to Barry. And he would, you know, whatever. He would say a lot of it was luck, but so what? 
How many bears t- turned bullish? About zero. Actually, one, Barry. He held on to some of his uh, perma bear friends, though, which is nice. That's nice to see. I mean, like, you got you to keep a diversified mix of people. Or yes. Or else you'd just be, like, reinforcing your own. Yes. So I like to get really bearish after the market's crashed, and then I get really bulled up right around a time and, like and this. I just want to talk about this chart just for a second, this, this net profit margin chart. This is the one part of the market that John, has chart on. just defied gravity. And this has been Grantham's shtick for the past decade that profit margins are like gravity. They will mean revert. Not yet. And I think in a world where the marginal cost of producing software is zero, and this is a software-driven market and a technology-driven market, we've never seen anything like this. So I understand why people who are from an earlier uh, version of the world and the market and businesses haven't been able to make sense of what the hell is going so this on. This is saying a uh, net profit margin for the S&P 500 since 2016 has pretty much been between 10 and 12%, like unwa- unwaveringly. Yeah, I'd like to see a longer chart, you know. This is high. This is like basically record highs. Record highs, but sticky Yeah, at those record highs. Right. Uh, what does this reflect? Well, I think interest rates right off the top. I would okay. say that, you know, a lot of times the, you overlay uh, in, you know, short-term rates and, you know, since... Uh, the pandemic, people have cashed up. All these companies have brought in tons of cash. So, and they're I, borrowing for thirty years at like four percent. But isn't pa- a big part of the story the mix shift of what's in the index? So that's what I'm saying. Yes, these absolutely. Are, these are, these like Facebook. You can't model that versus any company in history. And that's also you get the problem that you use like price book is used for the value indexes with with Facebook. What is their book? Yeah, it's all intangibles. Exactly. So, right. so the you know these these uh, a lot of these strategies, uh, they they get biased toward to and away certain sectors. Right. Um, let's talk about Christine Benz's thing. Who put this in? Who put this in the doc? Was this you? Yeah, I did. Okay. What's so, going on here, Chris? I, I just want let's just quote her and then we could riff on this. Christine said. The more I know, the more I can't be bothered with the arcane, the volatile, the hard to understand. Instead, I crave simplicity, peace of mind, and the ability to sleep at the switch and know that things will be okay. I also put a big, big put a big premium on my time. If an investment requires frequent monitoring, I'm out. So then she says, why aren't we also judging portfolios and choices based on whether they import impart a peace of mind, are simple, livable, and low maintenance? And she said, because attributes like simplicity and peace of mind can't be quantified and are subjective. Whereas the other stuff can be weighted and measured. I thought this was brilliant. This, like This reeks of complacency. No, <laughs> does, I'm just kidding. Oh, it's the opposite. Lo- love Christine. It's basically, it's like, listen, am I leaving some money on the table by not doing X, Y, or Z? Yeah, but I just want to live my life. Like, I don't want to spend my entire life on my phone keeping up with the latest and greatest. And I think you should put a premium on your time. What the hell else are we doing here? So what are the types of investments that require you to constantly monitor your portfolio? It's like, like options, contracts, obviously. What else? NFTs. Like, obviously. What do, you what do you think? They constantly monitor? Yeah. I mean, it's... Because you're looking at your list, like, once a year and yeah. making very few changes. Yeah. I mean, but there's, you know, people... There's such an urge for people to look at their portfolio every day. It's, you know, it's the gamification. It's like sports. You the, read well, the, the phone you know, buzzes. Yeah. The market's doing this, and it gets you to look, okay, how am I doing? Mm-hmm. I do. I look at my Robinhood portfolio 15 times a day for absolutely no reason. You're just like Christine Benz. Yeah. Exactly. It's a I state also, of mind. Place a premium what do you mean? Time. No matter what you have in your portfolio, you can choose to disengage in the need to 
check it all the time. Unless you have things that require changes. No, Blair, I'm addicted. You don't get it. (laughs) I know you're addicted. But what I'm saying is if you have a plan, if you have, you know, a thought out methodical process for what you invest in and don't make that process be what happens at the open or the close of the day. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think the new generation, the new generation doesn't want that. Right now, they will when they get older. Uh, you know, young people with their, you know, they want to be, they want to be in it. They want to touch the stocks. And, and so do people of all ages, though, right? You know, that's the transition that we make for a lot of people. Is I've been watching this all the time, and I'm so relieved now that that you guys are handling it because I don't have to think about it anymore. And that's a peace of mind. That's a decision. Yeah, I, I the client said that to me the other day. Like, just I just want to thank you that I am now able to like live my life and not be a slave to the screen. Eddie, let's do a lightning round. Okay. I asked you for your highest conviction holdings in Crossing Wall Street for the coming year. Mm-hmm. I want you to I want you to pitch me hard. I want you to take me to the mat. Get me to buy one of these stocks. What do you got? <laughs> what are What are your names? Josh, can I call you Josh? Yeah. Okay. Are you, unveil are you... the first. Unveil <laughs> the first ticker, sir. <laughs> let's see. Uh, Raw stores, great company. I like it a lot. Shooting it down. Sell it. What do you got? Uh, why Why would I put ROST in my portfolio? Uh, a deep discount. Um, uh, I just clothing. fell asleep. Why else? <laughs> uh, the stock is down. That's a good reason. Do they oh, sell VNEX? Uh, <laughs> do yeah. they sell stretched out VNEX? Can we, can we get? Okay, what else? Uh, very well-run company. Long history of um, uh, rising sales and earnings. They're also not a competitor. Is it rising earnings? Yeah. That sounds like a short rush. Yeah. <laughs> Earnings. Why aren't they building scale? They're not a competitor against uh, Amazon, so they're not being pushed out by everybody else. Because it is deep discount, they can pack their inventory. Other retailers can't do this. Uh, It's a very good company. And they warned that uh, they're going to have some weakness over the next few months. Honestly, this is a really really big winner. Semiconductors? Yeah, a lot of semis go into discount clothing. I think that they, uh, they lowball with earnings a lot. Uh, so that's, I've noticed Sandbag that. and son of a bitch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how long have you been in this stock for? Oh, probably at least 10 years. Okay. You know, I was talking to Ben about this today. I've never held anything for that long. Really? Yeah. Really? Well, you've only been investing yeah, for I mean, like that's 12 years. Yeah. You haven't been around that long. So in the last 10 years, the stock has done, uh, actually pretty exceptionally well. No? Yeah. I don't know how it's done relative to the stock market. So what do you think happens from here? Just steady Eddie? No yeah. pun intended? Yeah. Okay. And that's your that's your milieu. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, you, yeah. Milieu. That's your shit. Mm-hmm. Okay, like that's what you're looking for. I like to find Is that companies. One, you're looking for like stability of earnings growth. Could you like explain that to me? Like what? What's your initial screen? to find your universe of things that you're going to look at. Right. I don't follow, you know, it's not, it, it can't be reduced to a formula to borrow from Christine. No, it's more of an art form. We know you're right. an artist. Okay. Uh, but I look, I like to look for solid companies that have a strong competitive advantage that sort of have a lock in their marketplace. That's usually is manifest by rising uh, sales and earnings, stability of the cash flow. Generally, manipulated uh, accounting. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You like a lot of shady accounting. At, at the at the Stone Conference, they're always uh, called out. Russian subsidiaries. Mm-hmm. Right, I get it. Uh, what's your next stock? What else do you got? It, I think I listed Heiko, cool company, not very well known. H E I is the ticker symbol. Uh, I'm getting long make, right now as you talk. They, Keep talking. Uh, on this my is why we need the twenty four seven stock market. <laughs> That's right. They make it's an odd uh, business. They make replacement parts for aircrafts. 
Uh, so it's it, in many ways it's similar. I know I'm putting you to sleep. Out. <laughs> what are we talking about? All right, next. The physical economy, the real world. Yeah, this Nothing is the, sexy you could say. This about is that. the IRL world. I right, keep going. Let's let's do Zoetis. Because this uh, stock is a mover. Is that how you say it? I yeah, didn't know. So, so that is. Uh, spun off by uh, Pfizer. I saw it's great. <laughs> you already don't like it. <laughs> I know. I love it. That's a good thing oh, when I do that. that's a good thing. Yeah. I thought you were blowing this it This is up. one of the best stocks. This is one of the best stocks in the market. So uh, It's great. I, I, so I heard so it's it's pills for animals. It's, so it's, it's you know, medical for animals. Yeah. I so know a lot of animals and they love pills. Go so on. If your horse just has too many worms, turn <laughs> to these guys. I remember. <laughs> so it's COVID cures for I'm animals. I'm in. I'm long. I've heard over the <laughs> last 50 years, the dog has gone from sleeping outside to sleeping inside to sleeping in the bed. Under That's the true. sheets. That's true. Mine My dog does. sleeps with us every night. Yep. Okay. This stock is up huge. It was a, a spinoff from Pfizer. Wow, Have you chart. owned it since the spinoff? Uh, not long after. Look at that chart. Look at this thing. Up bigly. This, wow. I think it spun out at 30. It's 200. Mm-hmm. Why would this stop? People aren't going to stop loving their pets. And and also it's uh, you know farm animals as well. Well, fuck the farm animals. <laughs> Let's focus on the dogs. People aren't all of a sudden going to spend less on their on their household. Do you know animals. how many hormones people you know are going into these animals we eat? It's a big business. Oh, into like livestock. Yeah. Are they doing that too? Yeah. I don't know if I'm for or against that. Is it politically correct before that? This is not an ESG. Is it not ESG? But what know. if it's keeping them alive? True and clean and turning them interesting colors. So what, like, what could happen to Zoetis from here? Is all of the the good stuff they're doing priced in, or is there? You think you're going to hold on oh, to this I think one I'm, into next I'm, year? I, I'm, I'm still holding on to this. I think it's who do they compete started. with? Good, that's a good question. I don't know Coinbase? if they, if they go one on one against anybody. Okay. All right. So it's it's a unique it's a unique company. There's mm-hmm. not like a lot. Now of Let's talk about more stock. What what's Miller Industries? Oh, uh, this is a cool Buffett uh, kind of company. Uh, they make. Josh is going to buy <laughs> extraction Please. equipment. <laughs> I, at this point, I'm only doing that to get side-eyed from Mike. Go on. So uh, if you need, uh, you know, some, uh, if there's been a wreck and you need to pull something out, uh, these are the guys to go Wait, to. Wait, what sort of a wreck? A, uh, you know. Uh, jaws of life. Yeah. Really? Vehicle wreck, yeah. I just a, made that up. No, that, that's Wait, they, they manufacture the jaws of life? All what? sorts of any vehicles, specialized vehicles. Dealing with extraction. How, I, I'm, how, what's the origin story of this getting on your radar? Uh, I follow oddball comp- companies. You're I had to look it up. I wasn't sure. I, no, like, but where did you originally find it? Like, like, do come? Does, do these stocks come from a screen, or on TikTok? On TikTok. Okay, <laughs> that's fair. Why did this, I why heard did it stock from, crash? Uh, pr- why did this stock crash? Tell us. Is there an opportunity created? Well, I, I think. I think it's uh, that's. Very much related to uh, the lockdowns and their business just dried up. Oh, and people weren't driving as much. Exactly. Well, so- how sad that the <laughs> the success of your company is based on people needing the jaws of life <laughs> to right. take them out of a car. That's right. It's silver lining. Well, what happens with automated driving when nobody needs car insurance anymore because all the cars are perfect? That's not and- uh, Dead. Uh, yeah. No, people won't worry about the crashes. But pe- there'll be more crashes because people won't Eddie, how many, how many competitors does a company like this have? None. That, that's a good point because they've actually the, – the, the big red flag for them is that they've had antitrust uh, problems because they There's, so dominate the that's industry. That's bullish. Seriously. But there doesn't need to be a competitor in that's something that's this my point. niche That's exactly my point. Like the, these, this company you would think has a sustainable advantage. The guy Miller, uh, he, there were a bunch of small family-run companies. He bought them all up and he made you know, the parts work across the board. 
But that's that's really how we started the business. When you say this is a Buffett-like company, it's a roll-up. When you're buying stuff like this, do you say to yourself like, "This is the kind of thing I could picture Berkshire Hathaway buying"? Sure. And there sure. are a few Berkshire Hathaways mm -hmm. around in the market these days. Mm -hmm. Like, is that does that go into your allocation decisions or no? I mean, I just. Uh, it's probably not uh, at the front. I'm not trying to build a mini Berkshire, but it's the kind of thing Berkshire could have done 30 or you know, 40 years the, ago. Ben says Berkshire. That's unconventional. You said Berkshire? Yeah, it's unconventional. Are you from uh, Nottingham? Is that the Queen's <laughs> English? <laughs> Eddie, how, how important or unimportant are like access to management? Because I feel like, I don't know if that's a thing that people still talk about, boots on the ground, talking to management. Uh, supply chain, that sort of stuff. Does that is is that important at all? Are you yeah. at a disadvantage because you don't do that? Because I don't speak with management. Yeah, or I'm not, but I do speak with management. Oh, you do? Smaller, smaller company, sure. Oh, okay. You so like you can call up Miller because you've been in that stock for a couple of years and just be like, what 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 just what happened with this last last one of the one of the uh, for smaller companies, you would be surprised how quickly you can get the C CEO on. Yeah. And, and, you know, if someone says, I'm interested in what you do for work, can you sit down and tell me about it? Right. That's not something people hear a lot. Right. Uh, I talk to some of the stocks that I own, the CEOs. I've, I've, like the ones that are off the beaten path. Like I, I find that to be awesome that, you're able, that people are able to do that. Like most, most of them do not want to talk. Um, so when you call Zoetis. Jamie Dimon calls me, and I, you know, yeah. I can't always talk to him. Can you talk to Zoetis or no? No, no. Too but, big. but I can talk to people in the investor relations. Right. Okay. I and mean, if you say you're managing a fund, you're going to get uh, more response. Absolutely. He's big time. Of course, they're going to talk to him. So tell us, tell us what what goes into crossing Wall Street each year. So you're picking forty stocks. Twenty five. Twenty five. Oh, now this so you're is, this very is, concentrated. This That's is, focused equity, which you made fun of before. No, no, no. I love <laughs> the approach. I don't think. I I think the further away you can be from an index, the better mm -hmm. for for business reasons, for return reasons. If you get if you get it right. Yeah. So you're doing twenty five stocks. Each one is 4%-ish right. of the portfolio? So it's equally weighted at the beginning of the year. Five go in, five go out. So it's implied that you, when we get a stock, we're going to have a five-year holding period on it. Uh, it's not so you're not buying be... things that you think will only be good for next year's environment. Right. You're right. buying things that you want to be in for the long term. Mm -hmm. Five years and being the new long term. By the way, that's a really important thing for investors to think about. S sort of if you're thinking about buying a stock, imagine if you – you said to yourself, there was a rule that you can't sell it for five years. Would you be happy Would you still pull trade? the trigger on this, exactly. on this trade? It changes your mind how you think about the company. So now five come out. What's the decision-making process to throw five stocks out of your portfolio? It's usually – it's not the company I originally bought. So there could be a merger that I didn't like. A lot of times they're, they're bought out and you're let with the, uh, the new company that you don't like. Um and just bad decisions. They won't they take make. your phone calls. Exactly. Okay. Eddie, do you, do you talk to shareholders? Sure. Yeah. And that, that's one of the big differences about my ETF is that it's a lot of people I know and people who they support the system. So when- What, uh, does, that, what does that mean? Well, for example, during- uh, we had some of the worst days in history last year. Yeah. The outflows, uh, we really held firm. Right. Um, what, you threatened somebody? Yeah. So, so people can call you and say, "Hey, why are you adding this stock for 2022?" And mm -hmm. you'll like have a substantive conversation with them. Absolutely, BlackRock's not doing that shit. But you could do that with like Peter Lynch, you know, and and what people did 30 years ago. Your 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 parents, um, you didn't even know what was in the fund. Yeah, you didn't care either, though. In, like in those days, I don't think people cared. 
I think there were people who cared bought individual stocks. People who didn't care bought Peter Lynch. Mm -hmm. And they weren't like reading 13 Fs. Certainly wasn't an internet that they could read 13 Fs on. Okay. So do you like having those conversations? You seem sure. like you would. And, and I've actually gotten a lot of good uh, recommendations from uh, from uh, people. Oh, from shareholders. Me. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay. Because they want to talk shop. Mm -hmm. And they have investment ideas. Do you ever take any of their trades? Absolutely. What's, okay. your, what's the smallest market cap in the portfolio? Uh, right now, it's Miller. Oh, really? Yeah. What, so what are we talking there? I think it's around 450. Okay, it's and Miller, Miller was the Jaws of Life company? Yeah. Okay. It's so funny. It's it's four hundred fifty million dollar market cap. What are their profits a year? One hundred and fifty million. Yeah, it's right. There, wow. if you do that, was a tech stock. It would be a fifty billion dollar company right now. It's going for something like ten times twenty nineteen earnings. <laughs> what what all of a sudden? What, do you need the multiple to go up, or you just need them to keep growing earnings? Like just how do keep you growing earnings? That's good enough for that stock. Yeah. You have to go to Miller if you're in that business. There really is nobody else to go to. So how do companies like this grow their earnings? Is it operational efficiency? Is it new customers? They get into like it's a, it's a, a pseudo-monopoly. <laughs> right. Um, so what are the stocks? Do you want to give us a sneak preview of next year's stocks you're not allowed to yet? I don't know them yet. So when do you do that work? That will be in late December. Like right at the end of the year you do that mm -hmm. work? We try to, we try to balance. Uh, so the buy list on the website uh, follows as closely as we can the ETF. Okay. You, you, we have to hold some cash just operationally like 0.4%. I mean, we just can't get around that. So it's always, it's not going to be a hundred percent, but we try to get it, you know, have a great team uh, that I work with and they try to get it as close as we can to December 31st. Also, there are the custom back baskets. That's something I never fully understand, yeah. but that also has to be done. Okay. So can I pitch you some stocks between now and Christmas? Absolutely. Okay. What's your cell phone number? I'm going to, I think, I think uh, I'm going to give you one idea. I could think of an idea that I feel like is an Eddie Elfenbein name. Not going to do it now, but we'll see. We'll see what you think of it. Oh, off the record? Uh, yeah, I'm going to do an off the record. I don't want to start pitching stocks on the show. All right. Uh, let's hit this Social Security benefits thing because the the listeners that we have that are over 70 definitely want to hear about this. Benefits to increase by 5.9% next year, which is the highest increase in 40 years. What's going on with this? Blair, tell me what's going on with this. Yeah, so – when I told Michael about this yesterday, he said, oh, that's amazing. And I said, no, that's super scary. <laughs> yeah. And he said, why? And I said, because that means there's inflation. Yes. This is tied to the actual government-reported inflation numbers. Finally, they're telling the truth. The economy is on fire. Inflation is here. The millennial is going to be pissed about this. This scares me because I'm going to be 40 this year. This is the highest number in increase in benefits in my lifetime. However, retirees need the increase. And the average check is going up like $98. Um, Tell us month. how this works. It's a cost of living adjustment or COLA. Yes. And they do this each year. Yes. What are they looking at? CPI? I don't know if it's exactly CPI. It might be CPIU. Okay. Um, but it's one of the you know metrics. And there were years where there was no increase after the financial crisis. Yeah. So no inflation. And like 2% is like high. So it's great that everybody's getting a pay increase. But that means that- My bonds are still negative. Your costs yields. have gone up that much. So, you know- we can't run financial plans on a 5.9% sustained inflation. So we, we got to see this come down. A 6% cost of living adjustment is – so I feel like they're going to blow all that extra money on DraftKings. What, like they're going to – I mean they need the money. They, they do. They can't live in this economy 
without an adjustment of that size, given what's happened with prices. Yeah, it says the average check in here is something like $1,200 a month. Right. Okay. I mean, and that's the majority of most people's income who are who are receiving Social Security. So they need the increase, but at the same time, that means prices went up this much. So this is a huge number, um, and it really blew my mind when I saw it. So it's obviously not sustainable. We can't do this We can't for have this much inflation. We can't do this for another couple of years. No. Okay. Th this is pretty unrelated, but it's just a, a wow price increase story. So one of our advisors, Alex, was in Las Vegas over the weekend, and he got a double Red Bull and vodka. And guess how much it was? $6. Twenty dollars. Wait, what? $6. <laughs> no, not not downtown. Somewhere on the strip. 20? Not not Binion's. Uh, yeah, I say 20. <laughs> 55. 55. No. What is it? He's, was he at the Bellagio? He needs to go he to the said, Monte Carlo. He was he got he got two of these. One friend, one first friend, the the, the guy goes 110 bucks and Alex goes, "Wait, what?" It's a double goose. What is it? Double yeah, goose vodka with, and red, with red, red Bull. Bull? It's probably not even Gregor's, but whatever. Uh, the guy goes 110 bucks. No. Was this at the pool? This was at the club. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was at the club. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. still. You're just paying at, to be this there. This was at breakfast. So, <laughs> so, uh, $12 for water. Yeah. It's just hilarious. Well, it's not even that shocking to me. I think because I live in New York city, but if you visit Vegas from that's like, too, that's too from much. Like Omaha and they're like $55, you probably think that the, there's something wrong with the guy's brain, but it's listen, you want to be at the day party? You want to, you want to be at uh, you want? To, I don't. I definitely no, don't. I definitely don't either. Uh, all right, we're gonna do favorites, and I want to start. I originally was gonna say New Orleans versus Baltimore, but then I realized you live in Washington D.C. Two of my favorite cities, though. What like, do you mean New Orleans versus? What does that even mean? Uh oh, what, got it. I got. It. What do we think? What do which which do we think like New Orleans or let's just say like is it Chesapeake Bay area? What do sure. we call it? Mid Atlantic? Mid Atlantic, yeah. Crab cakes and football. Okay. What's like the biggest difference in, in lifestyle between these two places, do you think? I lived in uh the DC area for, for a couple of years during school. What do you think? Well, New Orleans is is unique in and of itself. When I first moved to New Orleans eleven years ago, I remember thinking this is like a European city. It's like not like being in America. It's okay. like the most un-American city there is. There's just something very unique about it. But there are some similarities, right? There's there's um, the disparity in incomes. There's the inner city. There's the, the public school systems that are just suffering. Uh, and I'm talking specifically about Baltimore, but this also applies to D.C., by the way. Yeah. Um, so I do see the similarities, but you just can't compare anything to New Orleans because it has its own. It's very, it's extremely unique. Yeah. Did you watch the like Did you watch the Judge show with Brian Cranston? What was that called? Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor. Your Honor. It took, that took place in New Orleans. Was this recent? Yeah, six months ago. That was that was an amazing show, and New Orleans was almost like a character in the show. Because to your point, like those income disparities played a really big role in what was going. Did you watch that? I didn't see it. Now. The guy with uh, the guy from Breaking Bad right. is in it. It's a good show. Uh, D.C. So I was talking to you before. There are parts of D.C. that feel European to me also. Like, first of all, no grid. Mm -hmm. You guys are a series of concentric circles. Yeah. Which is by design. Yeah, it was designed that way. So that you couldn't invade on foot, basically. <laughs> you think, think maybe so. they can redo some of that? I don't know. I find D.C. to be the hardest city to drive around of anywhere that I go. I know, I know you, you've lived there forever. 
But do other people tell you that? Yeah, it's it's not pleasant to drive around. It's uh, I have I have a car uh, in the city, and it's um, it's really not a benefit having it. Have you ever thought about Have you ever thought about leaving DC, or you're just going to be there forever? Like you ever um, think about Florida? Um, maybe you know, way down the road when I retire. Okay, you love it. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you when you th- meet up with people that work in finance. DC's not big for that. No, it's not. Isn't that strange? And it's something I kind of like. I mean, there, there's no Federal Reserve Bank. There are no major uh, firms are based there. Uh, a lot of, you know, they'll have branch offices. But as far as Baltimore, which is not the international city that DC is, Baltimore has way more. Uh, Baltimore has Leg Mason, which Price. Somebody, somebody else bought now. Yeah. Right. Uh, so there's there's a, a it's not lot. a big finance culture in DC at all. Not not at all. Franklin, what like missing? Yeah. Uh, oh, that's right. We yeah. were just we were just talking to them. Uh, all right, favorites. Michael, what do you got? Uh, Ryan Rosillo, he's a sports guy. Had a podcast with Trent Dilfer. And you like Trent Dilfer? He's on. He's been on that show before. He made a, he, Trent Dilfer made a very good point. He's talking about like football and scripting the games and management, uh, in game, all that sort of stuff. And he said. Um, once the whistle blows, like emotions throw everything off or I'm paraphrasing something like that. And it was, it was, it was a great analogy to investing, obviously, like you can have the plan, but if you're not committed, you could shoot yourself on the foot. You could be your own worst enemy when volatility spikes, whether it's in the game or in the markets, I guess, which has become a game. I thought that was very good. Worth listening to. Blair, what do you got for us? College football. What about it? I'm, I miss it. You're currently playing. I missed it last year. I know it happened, but it just didn't feel real to me without the crowds. Um, and my alma mater, Georgia, is number one. Thank you to Texas A&M for knocking off Alabama last week. That was a super exciting game. The last you're not you're not Crimson Tide. You're from, but you're they from are there. like the evil enemy. So okay. my parents went to Auburn, which is the other school in Alabama. Right. And growing up, like you're either Auburn or Alabama. Where's Clemson? In South, South Carolina. Okay. So you're either Auburn or Alabama, and neither the two, you, you know, you're either for or against. So anytime Alabama gets beat, I'm I'm happy. Okay. Are <laughs> um, you not allowed to be friends with people who are from the other one? Like, how deep did that run? I mean, like I am a Romeo friends, and Juliet but, situation? but yeah, we're friends. Okay. Not the day after Just the not Iron on Bowl. Saturday. So the last college football game I attended in person was the Iron Bowl when Auburn plays Alabama in 2019. Okay. Right before basically everything shut down in Auburn, and they beat Alabama. That's the last time Alabama lost before this last Saturday. Okay. And it was one of these back-and-forth games. I was screaming my head off. I was pregnant, so wasn't even imbibing at this right. <laughs> this game. We're screaming. The Alabama football team thinks that the clock is going to run out for halftime, and they run into the locker room, and it's not. And they have to run back out, and Nick Saban's on the sideline, like, throwing his his – and he's just pitching a fit because he thinks that it should be over, and then Auburn gets to kick a field goal, and so it, it, that ended up being the, the deciding factor in the game. Anyway, college football is the most exciting experience in live person. Um, I'm really excited about my team, Georgia. Have you been to a game since this shit all started? I have not. I, I could have gone to, like, Auburn-Akron, like, you know, games, but like, that's they, a nothing are game. Are these games full again? They're they're packed. Yeah. And okay. it doesn't freak me out at all. LSU actually is requiring um, vaccinations or negative tests to get in. 
So I thought that was really admirable of them. Is that controversial still? In, in I'm sure it is. Their, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it doesn't bother me. Uh, for whatever reason, the crowds don't bother me at all. It's There's nothing more exciting to me than college football. I'm really excited that it's back. I'm really excited my team's number one. we got to beat Kentucky this week, and we will be the, the winners of the SEC East, which means we'll probably play Alabama in the SEC championship game. Um, and then we got the playoffs. Our our coach Kirby Smart, young guy, early forties. He's just getting started. He's going to be there forever. You got to you got to go to the one of these games. I know. I, I got to get to Athens. I feel like you're really um, excited about it. You I'm probably going to go to a game at Ole Miss. My my in laws are, are Ole Miss alums, so I'm probably going to go to one of those games in the next couple of weeks. So um, I look forward. I look forward to the Instagram content. Yeah. All right, Eddie, favorites, and then we're going to get out of here and eat some dinner. What do you got? <laughs> I feel bad. I didn't Miller have anything. Industries. But but I got to say. <laughs> Uh, Pet I, meds. I love uh, I love uh, college football. I think Ben said that on a recent yeah. podcast. Yeah, this week. Thank and you it's for such a different uh, uh, sport, and it just brings the energy you don't have. And the Iron Bowl from I'm going to say it was probably about five years ago. The pick with, six. Yes. Yeah, my or, brother or, was there. The, I wasn't there. The return. Okay. You, do you guys ball. know about this? Mm-hmm. Okay. It was wait a few seconds. A few seconds on the clock, and. What did they? Alabama was going to kick a, a field, field goal. goal. Yeah, very long field goal. Very long field goal to run out the clock, and the guy, the Auburn receiver guy, catches it. It's not a field goal. He catches it in oh, the end zone. Of course, of course. The, the clock zero. ticks zero. He runs nine, you know, hundred and three yards yeah. to score, and they win the game. And it was like yeah. it was like on the field. Oh, Actually, people's the, jaws dropped. It's yeah, like and before that, it was punt, Bama punt from back in, like, the 80s or whatever. I hope there's somebody on this podcast listening who's as into this as me, but, like, I just love well, college Our audience is exclusively Alabama, so I, I definitely I thought we skew was, Auburn. We do skew Alabama these days. Uh, what, so what's your favorite, college football? I, I, I love watching college football. I, I what's your a, team? You're a baseball fan. Uh, baseball you're fan, You're an Orioles too. guy, right? Uh, no, no, Nats. Nats. Dude, he's not Baltimore. Oh, yeah. No, but there weren't any Nats. I love baseball, there were nuts. too. The I Nats are 10, ten, yeah. ten years? Uh, no, it's closer to 20. Is it really? Where yeah. did they come from? Uh, Montreal. Oh, We lost a team twice. The Expos. We lost the Senators. Yeah, we lost the Senators twice. When did the Senators play? The 70s? Uh, up, to, up to the uh, 72 was their last year. Okay. And then what other team did you lose? Uh, the so Wizards. No, the... the um, We've always had the, the, the Wizards. <laughs> worst team in the NBA. The they're bullet, from the Baltimore. Yeah. They're from uh, no, but, Baltimore. No, I just, I'm just talking about the Wizards, but they are the worst team in the NBA this year. Uh, I think. Orlando? I think the Wizards are worse. Wizards? Okay. So it's the, the Twins yeah, maybe were the Senators, and so were the Rangers. The Minnesota Twins were the Senators? Yep. Do people know that? I didn't know that. Did you know that? The, I just no found idea. out. So you learned something. So, so what, what's going on with the Nats this, uh, this, pa- this past season? They keep losing. Yeah, it's not good. No. What can we do about that? Score more runs and allow fewer runs. Yeah, I feel like you're really going to want to put up more runs, uh, generally speaking. All right, well, go Nats. Look, if you're in D.C., you don't have a good sports situation almost ever. No. Like, I mean, that's... Our football team is literally no comment. Your, fo- your football <laughs> team has no name. Yeah, but at least you have Congress. That's true. At least we can fall back and on that. And you have the Wizards, and then is that it? What's the hockey team? Capitals? The Caps are usually pretty good. Wait, didn't they win? They, they won the Stanley Cup. Yeah. All right, so you have some, you a hockey guy? Yeah, I love, love watching the Caps. All right, good for you. So you, got, so you got that going for you, which is nice. All right. No well, Senators. <laughs> you ever run into Tony Kornheiser? I have not, no. <laughs> oh, from Pardon? I feel like you guys would be friends. <laughs> so, uh, similar, similar demographic. 
So, so we're going to wrap, and we're going to thank Eddie and Blair for coming through for the show. You guys are two of my favorite people. Really great to see that everybody made it through the pandemic. Eddie, I told you, I was surprised by you. I didn't know, I didn't know that we would see you on this side of it. How did you stay safe from everything? Uh, what did you do? It's I, a lot of, yeah. a lot of, a lot of pet meds. Is that, was that the trick? Yeah. All right. Well, listen, we're glad that you made it through. Thank you. Thanks for coming through. John, great job on the boards tonight. We appreciate you. Great charts. Thank you. Thank and guys, if you want to see clips from today's show, always go to youtube.com slash the compound RWM. Make sure you check out Eddie's website, which is Crossing Wall Street, one of the oldest blogs in North America. Am I right? Mm-hmm. 2005. 2005. If you wow. haven't checked out Eddie's stuff, always witty. You'll, you will always learn something. Unless and, of course, it. Blair's blog, The Bell Curve, which when did when did the bell curve start? 18? 18, three years. Okay. And how many how often are you posting? I wish I was posting more often, about once a week. Once a week. Good Wait, enough. I have a link fest too. No need to do more. Say say what you want to say and I'm a full time advisor. Move on with your life. You know? All right. Check out the bell curve for more from Blair Duke and A. And we will see you guys next week. Oh man, what a show. Nice again to Direction. Investing in a Direction Shares ETF includes possible loss of principal and may be more volatile than investing in broadly diversified funds. The use of leverage by the funds increases risk. The Direction Shares ETFs are not suitable for all investors and should be utilized only by sophisticated investors who understand leverage risk, consequences of seeking daily leverage or daily inverse leverage investment results, and intend to actively monitor and manage their investment. The funds are distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.